everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. Thank you for being here today. It's just me today. And I was going to talk a little bit about diversity in leadership. We know we like specialists. In general, we prefer a doctor, a lawyer, or a repair person who really knows his or her stuff. Years ago, I interviewed for a job at the Department of Justice in D.C., I was an attorney recently out of school, and the attorney that interviewed me took a lot of time to read my resume. It was just a two-page resume. I was, I'd been a teacher for 17 years before I made the move to law, but the two-page resume highlighted a pretty wide variety of different professional preparations. To her credit, this woman looked me in the eye and said, John, every item you have on your resume that highlights a skill or background that isn't exactly what I need detracts from your candidacy. Now, I always considered diversity or experience a strength. But as my interviewer made clear, some employers view diverse experience as a liability. If one candidate spent the last 10 years doing one job and another candidate held a variety of jobs, it seems like a good bet you'd go with the more experienced candidate, right? This idea of expertness was reinforced in one of my favorite books where Malcolm Gladwell talks about this now famous idea of 10,000 hours being the magic number of hours needed to become a master in some field. We like to work with masters. Somehow, schools are different. Schools employ people with a greater diversity of interests and backgrounds than you find in other workplaces in my experience. Part of the reason is that most people with what I notice as diverse academic, professional, experiential, geographic, linguistic, or cultural backgrounds self-select into education in higher numbers. So what's the value of diversity when you're applying for a job or when you're hiring for a job? Diversity seems to be enormously valuable when you're hiring, but you have to make sure you've answered a few critical questions before you hire the person. The first question is always the same. Is the project that you are hiring for better suited to a deliverables contract for a limited duration, as the lawyers say? In other words, works almost always better suited to deliverables contracts when you know what you want. Even if the thing that you want is a repeated deliverable, you need to repeat it every year, you repeat it every month, or you repeat it every week, A deliverables contract is almost always a better way to go than to hire someone. Main reason people don't use deliverables contracts as opposed to hiring someone is because they don't know what they want. They have some idea of what they want, but they're hoping that the person who comes in will be able to solve a problem by coming up with their own ideas. They don't know exactly what they need. Schools are becoming increasingly sophisticated in in using that kind of outcomes-based contracting, but they have a long way to go, a lot longer way to go than what's happening in the private sector. One reason is that school leaders are typically unable or unwilling to take the time to define what they need. The second reason is a little more cynical, but it's actually probably fairly accurate without being cynical which is that a lot of school leaders aren't willing to take on the status quo. School leaders frequently are parochial leaders who are hiring people because they need to for political connections. In short, there's somebody 
who is working there they want to keep and a spouse or a family member needs to be hired or that person's going to have to leave. There are entirely humane, civil, and reasonable reasons for someone to hire a friend or a family member when that is part of the deal to get that other to get another person there. Sure, there are times when it's just flat out nepotism and the person adds no value, but many times there are there are really good reasons to hire locally. In short, public school managers, public sector managers usually have more incentives to hire than to contract. Okay, that's the first issue. The first situation is always that you want to avoid hiring someone and outsource the issue if you can because it's always a better deal. Second, once you've answered the is a deliverables contract better question in the negative, you will need to ask whether you know exactly what you want from the person you will hire. If you don't know, ask yourself why. Odds are good you don't know why or what you want to hire because you're looking for something innovative and creative. Innovation and creativity in a position or in a person that you bring to a position is central to why most people hire in the first place. Maybe there are some essential things that you want done for a job, and you know those essential things that need to get done, but you're really hoping that a new person can bring something fabulous and new to the position that hadn't been brought before. If you recognize that you need a creative and innovative worker, that is the moment at which you should also realize you do not want to do what the hiring manager from the Department of Justice did with me. You want to hire someone with a diverse background. Creativity and innovation come from diversity. Diverse experiences in work, education, geography, language comes from or creates people who are more likely to be genuinely innovative, think differently, and work differently. If that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for someone who's going to create something new and innovative and different, make sure you hire a candidate who is, of course, committed, inspired, and experienced, but make darn sure that the candidate has the most diverse background possible. The second thing I wanted to talk about today was reliability in school success. This is based on an article that I wrote back in 2016, and it's still applicable today. Curriculum today is more and more aligned. Grade-level expectations, common assessments, professional learning communities, common core standards, international baccalaureate standards, advanced placement standards, and easily shareable course content make it easy and more natural than ever for every school to have a guaranteed and viable curriculum. What makes a school a reliable means to student success? The best schools take no chances at helping every student succeed. The best schools prioritize everything. Highly competitive teacher and administrator salaries, small class sizes, abundant technology, frequently updated facilities, loads of clubs and sports, and always available support specialists. Which of those makes a school reliably successful, though? Well, no one really knows. If your child gets a radically different experience in sophomore English from your neighbor's child, you can be sure that the curriculum at those schools aren't aligned. Now, curricular leaders are almost organically moving toward greater alignment, and it's happening worldwide, even here in China. Common Core is a powerful example of this. 
In the 1990s, I saw departments that had difficulty agreeing on what novels were must-reads for junior English students. I assure you that if you cannot agree on what novels to read or what textbooks you're using, you're surely not going to agree on the best way to teach those novels. Unfortunately, the primary way that schools aligned curriculum for decades was through the textbooks that the schools approved. They held the purse springs on which books were purchased, and if they couldn't control exactly what teachers would teach and how teachers would teach, they could at least control what resources they got. So when they approved a textbook, they were approving a certain type of curriculum. That's changed a lot with the availability of digital resources, but in general, old tensions still exist that hold schools back from being reliable places for student success. So what are those places? One area of tension is between this idea of local control of schools and the guarantees and viabilities of the best school's curriculum. School board members are elected to represent the interests of their constituents. One local school is supposed to be able to have a curriculum more responsive to its population than a neighboring school. The problem with this is that this runs directly counter to the idea of state or national standards. The tension between local control and widely held standards is a major challenge for school leaders. Bridging the gap between local control and national standards is the challenge for school leaders. The only logical way the system can work is when effective school leaders balance local and global curricular priorities. In terms of people, school leaders need to balance the school board members' priorities with the teachers' priorities. The way to a guaranteed and viable curriculum is, according to the Chicago Public Schools and the theory underlying it from the University of Chicago's research, principles. The assumption is that principals are instructional leaders with the power to run schools independent of oversight from district-level managers, school boards, or other higher-ups. I've worked in plenty of schools where principals are not instructional leaders. In most schools I've worked in, in fact, the principals are maybe cheerleaders at their worst or at their best. They're just managers who, quite frankly, don't really need a lot of academic preparation because they could be running a McDonald's just as readily as they're running a school. Everything they deal with is budgets, personnel, and paperwork. But the way to a guaranteed and viable curriculum and long-term school improvement is giving principals the power to control curriculum with their teachers and make sure that principals are instructional leaders. Thanks for listening. Come back again in two weeks and we'll talk more. We'll have a guest on. I'm looking forward to talking to you soon. Take care.